of this week's Cowboys Crunch Time. It is a two-part series. Thank you so much to our guests from part one, Danny Kelly of fieldgoals.com and Ryan Burns of the Football Sickness Podcast, bringing us their insight on, obviously, the coming week. Uh, The Seahawks are our opponent. We will focus today on what the Cowboys will be doing to try to end this four-game losing streak against the two-time defending NFC champ, the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, We're going to touch base with my man, of course, Cowboys insider Mike Fisher. My co-host Keith Mullins will be here for his usual segment and the return of Mr. Joey Ike to give his insight as we talk all things Cowboys. You will not want to miss this episode just as you did not want to miss last week's. So why are we still talking about it? Let's get to it right here, right now. And you know what that intro music means. It is time to move on up to the best portion of our show on a weekly basis. It is time for Hook, Line, and Thinker with the Fish. The one and only Cowboys insider Mike Fisher joins us now on Crunch Time. How are you doing, sir? Outstanding. Thank you. Well, it is great to have you on. And, of course, all things are going on for the Cowboys. It seems like every week the Cowboys are at the center of the national attention which makes it hilarious when we see these polls about whether or not the Cowboys are truly America's team anymore. If they weren't, then why do they leave SportsCenter and NFL Network and they talk about the Cowboys all day long? First and foremost on the agenda, we have to discuss the goings-on in practice and who returns to the practice field today. Give me the scoop. Well, the big one, obviously, is Des Bryant, and he indicated to me that you know, if they if they said yeah, you're going to go on a limited basis, that he'd go go and go some more, and that's what happened. He entered the day. Uh, the idea was let's let's do this limited and let's see what happens. But you know, dead is dead, and the idea that that he was going to go halfway through a route, or that he was going to skip a turn so you know Vince Mayo could take a trip, that I don't think that happened. One of the other guys told me that that Dez was dead. So. We're going to go with limited, um, but this is certainly a super trend up towards Des Bryant playing against Seattle on Sunday. 
And and I, I you know, me being me, I made my remarks on Twitter. I wonder how all of the national people who insisted that they had the inside information from the doctors in the know about what exactly the Cowboys were going to be able to do with Dez and how he was going to be out for 10 to 12 weeks for sure and maybe sit out the season. And it's just very interesting to know where he is right now. This was six weeks yesterday or Monday, I should say, from when he had the surgery, and he's right on track. He's he's right on track with what – again, this, you know, this is why – and you and I get off on these journalism tangents sometimes on the show, and I don't know what – I don't know if the feedback on it is, hey, keep it up, fellas, because it's, you know, it's a unique look at how it works, or, hey, let's get back to extra nose. I, I don't know. You tell me. But uh, sometimes people are just making it up. <laughs> and, and I don't – I'm not saying that's the case specifically with, with you know, Greg Hardy went AWOL and Des Bryant out, out for the year. And I, I, I think in some of those cases, people are taking a, a nugget of information and turning it into a mountain that becomes misinformation. Um, Des, there, there was nobody in that building. No way anybody in that building ever told a reporter Des was out 12 weeks. There's no way. So it had to be it had to be some doctor's opinion from outside Valley Ranch. I mean, I'm, it has to be a medical somebody's medical opinion, uh, unless it was right. completely made up. And I I don't want to believe that that a credible reporter is just making stuff up because his editor is telling him we got to have a cowboy story today. But it was never going to be 12 weeks, uh, according to according to everybody involved, everybody involved, including of course Des Bryant himself. So he is on track. Uh, I don't know of any setback or anything like that. You know, we'll monitor this tomorrow, but I would assume that on Thursday it's ramped up a little bit more. And and if Dez comes out with a full participation tomorrow on Thursday, I would not be surprised at all. And there it is. And it, it, it leaves a lot to the imagination. I was uh, on part one of this week's uh, podcast. I was talking to Danny Kelly, Seahawks guy, uh, and we were talking about, you know, last year how Richard Sherman – follow Dez across the field and how he normally doesn't do that because I, I personally think that with the way the Seahawks secondary plays and with the hit or miss aspect of the rest of the wide receivers on the roster, I don't think the Cowboys have a chance if Dez doesn't play uh, to be able to do what they did against the poorest Giants secondary and the Giants got three interceptions on the Cowboys and we know the difference in the levels between those two defenses. So I, 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 I don't believe that this is, you know, Dez saying I have to come back for this game but the Cowboys really do need his presence back on the field immediately. Yeah, you know, and, and Dez tells me that night, that Sunday night in New York, he says, I don't need to be 100%. If I feel right, I'm going to go. But uh, the Cowboys may have gotten lucky and avoided that potential conflict because Jason Garrett said today in regard to the bone scans and the test that you know, all's good. So he didn't, he didn't say 100%, but he said all's good. So right. we're going to take that as good enough, and we're going to plow forward here. <laughs> now, obviously, Des isn't the only Cowboys member uh, requiring national attention. Uh, the dust-up that happened in, in the Giants game uh, about Greg Hardy on the sideline, who seemed to, out, aside from the conflict with uh, special teams coach Rick, Rich Basaccia, it seemed to be of the mold of the Des Bryant trying to rally his troops. And, you know, he's an angry individual, so it does, uh, you know, appear a certain way to people from afar. But a lot of the audio that we've heard seemed to be more so him pleading 
for players to get their act together and join him in trying to win this game, um, which on one hand worries me about the constant state of the rest of the players on the team and their devotion to getting a win at all costs, but it obviously brings to light the national attention on Greg Hardy's personality and the judgments that people make. So I'll let you take the floor since we've discussed Hardy, you know, so often. What was your take about how everything went down, and are some of these people right, or do you think it's much to do about nothing? Yeah, Katie, first of all, I, I, I would take issue with the suggestion that because one guy's yelling, the other 52 guys don't care as much as the yeller, uh, whether it's Dez or Witten or Hardy or Tom Brady or Peyton Manning. I don't buy that at all. You know, you could be the, the most the most intense, most desirous of winning nonverbal guy out there, and you want it as bad as anybody. Darren Woodson is a great example. We talked a lot about him this, this ring, of, ring of Honor weekend. Darren, Wooden, Darren, Darren Woodson didn't say much at all during his career. I mean, at all. He, right. He didn't, he, but, but he has and still has so much fire inside of him that that's what you fed off. I think Greg Hardy and Des Bryant would be well advised to learn that their teammates can feed off their fire without so without them yelling. Uh, I I don't know if Michael Irvin ever learned that lesson. It was it wasn't it wasn't always productive to get yelled at by Michael Irvin, even though his intentions were in the right place. So. Um, I go all the way back to was it Dez at Detroit, who's you know waving his arms and yelling, and because people can't hear him, they assume he's saying terrible things. And then we get the audio of it, and you realize all he's saying is, "Hey, run this play, that play, and that play." They can't stop us. We're the best. There was nothing negative about it. In Greg Hardy's case, what I'm gathering is that most of what he was yelling is, "Help me, help you." Let's help each other. Help each other. And right. the message is, but uh, and and you know, Greg Hardy keeps indicating to me that he doesn't care about this. Doesn't care about perception. That and I I appreciate his position, but there perception is reality in this sense that when you do what Greg Hardy did on the sideline, and humans react the way they do, as long as they might be. The organization then has spent a great deal of energy mopping up the poop, and and so and and here 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 it is middle of the week and we're still talking about it. You and I are still talking about it, and Garrett and Jones and Jones and, and every, everybody still having to mop up this mess that didn't need to be a mess. We need to understand better how humans are going to react to our actions, and then continue to try to funnel it any more positive direction. Uh, having said all that, if Greg Hardy at this point goes in the field with his shoe untied, some national reporter is going to write <laughs> about how he's irresponsible because his shoelace is untied. That's, he doesn't prepare. <laughs> right. Not, there you go. Um, and, and then he'll either really like or pretend to like embracing the villain's role. Because right now he, he certainly is, is doing that. I think he's having some fun with it, but man, you, you know, it's one like Skip Bayless can embrace a villain's role because he actually is a villain. <laughs> Skip is, you know, he's not playing a bad person on TV. He's a bad person, and I'm right. not sure. You know, a lot of times, I mean, you've got this, this concept now that Greg Hardy's a bad person. I, I, I just think it's more complicated than that. 
I, I also think it's more complicated than just say, well, I'll tell you what, 100%, Jason Wood is a good person. I mean, it's more complicated than that. He's, he's just like you, he's just like me. Uh, but, but, but TV and the national media and perception and all those things, are un, they're unchangeable. What really sucks for a great party now, that, that the, the erroneous, completely erroneous report. I, we had this thing buckled down from 11.16 that Thursday morning all the way to as we speak now. I, I, we, we know every single detail about Greg Hardy being sick, including talking to Greg Hardy about it on Friday, and we reported that here. But, uh, you know, a million people know our know our report. A billion people know somebody else's report. The toothpaste is out of the tube. Now Greg Hardy's gone AWOL on the Cowboys. And there's not, a, there's not a damn thing that anybody can really do to fix that poisoned well conception. Yeah, and that just goes to uh, the reason why we feel the way that, you know, I, obviously your media, um, technically I guess I would be considered media as well, even though I don't think of myself in, in that light. But this is the frustration that so many people have when they have information directly about the team and then national guys get the headlines based on stuff that is a half-truth or a quarter-truth and is spun out of control to generate clicks and ratings. Because for me, there's no way that somebody just came on the information about what happened with Greg Hardy being sick on Thursday to expose it on a Monday or Tuesday. It just does, it doesn't make logical sense for it to have blown up the way that it did after the sideline rant. They, it, it, it seemed so obvious that it was just add-on, hey, Greg Hardy had a, had a sideline rant, Let's see what else we can dig up and go crazy over. And there was the fact that he missed work because he was sick. Well, remember, we in the same exact uh, fashion, we did it to Des Bryant on all the police calls to his house. Remember that? Yep. Yep. You know, and and we, we there, was, there was actually there was one conflict uh, at a, on a, at a Des Bryant property in all these years. Not counting the time that you know his cousin called the fire department, or not counting another time when somebody had a flat tire. I mean, but by the time the NFL Network got a hold of it, it added up to seven incidents. But, but some of the incidents were, you know, somebody had a flat tire. It's, it's you're right. It's frustrating, and it's really troubling, and you and I need to get over it because <laughs> until, until they name you president of ESPN, there's very little we can do about it. We, we probably just need to cover our cover our teams and write our stories and talk to the people we talk to, and that's the best we get. I, I'm really flattered when somebody says to me, and I can't believe you you only have so many Twitter followers or whatever. I, I, I can't believe I only have so many Twitter followers either. But what, <laughs> but what, I can't believe it either. But what are we going to I mean, I look at and listen, Ian Rappaport is I'm is a friend. I'm not like Ian. We're we're friendly. Uh, and I don't even I don't know how many Twitter followers are, but you know, there's guys those guys writing about the Cowboys who have half a million Twitter followers who've never stepped foot in the Valley Ranch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know. I, I'm trying not to lose sleep over it, so this isn't doing me any good. So let's move on. <laughs> All right, so let's let's talk about the uh, announcement in the middle of the firestorm that the Cowboys were very interested in working out a long-term extension with Greg Hardy. Um, how obviously they wouldn't say it if they didn't mean it, 
Greg Hardy's representatives has returned the favor and said that they would like to work out a long-term deal, which we already know because he said in the interview a couple weeks ago that made fire that he wanted to be a cowboy for the next 12 years. So this isn't a news flash, except for the fact nope. that when when the Cowboys went ahead and 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 gave it credence, uh, you know, as far as Stephen Jones and Jerry Jones. So, is there anything that's indicating that they're in negotiation right now, or is this just preliminary talk? Yeah. First of all, great job by 105.3 The Fan, because you know our, our guys are the guys that got Stephen and got Jerry, and yep. You know, there's there's some spin here. Stephen Stephen said about. Absolutely zero concerns, you know, negatively. Absolutely we have zero concerns about Greg Hardy. That's not true. That's not even close to true. Right. There's, you know, you have concerns about everybody before you give them a long-term deal. Otherwise, they would have given Greg Hardy a long-term deal six months ago. Um, and you're very astute to point out that, that a lot of people are just re-breaking this story. ESPN did this too. ESPN rebroke the story of Greg Hardy's side being interested in a long-term deal. We already—he already said he was. Right. He already said he was interested in a long-term deal. That's not—that's no, that's not news in the sense that it's new. It's—it's <laughs> it's old. <laughs> it's breaking old. Uh, but you know, it's—it's it's new. I guess it's new to people watching SportsCenter tonight. Right. Uh, exactly. But, the problem is, and nobody's better at this than you, how you're really going to do it. So I, I yeah, want to do it, and you, uh, that's, that's the problem. I I want to deal, I mean, I, I want to stay here, and you want me to stay here, okay? And But you want, first of all, you want a hometown discount, and then you want, uh, you want kind of a, hey, the Jones family's been awfully good to you. You want that discount. And then you want a, Hey, you are kind of a bad boy, and, and other teams might not want you. You want that discount. What? You're not going to get all three discounts if they get any, right? Right. not going to get all three. So you're Greg Hardy, and you look across the, the horizon. Aren't you seeing Sue's deal in Miami? And Houston's deal in Kansas City. And Houston's in Kansas City, and before that, J.J. Watt in Houston. Now, somebody can say, what, are you out of your mind? This guy's no J.J. Watt. Sure. It kind of is. Yeah. Uh, Now, somebody else might come back and say, J.J. Watt, you know, uh, J.J. Watt has a polished image and a clean cut, All-America. Well, good for him. Good for him. (laughs) Because... Because if you had to, how about this? If you had to choose between J.J. Watt at $100 million or Greg Hardy at $100 million, who would you choose? <sighs> it's a very tough call. So I, I, I know See, your money should be similar because it's a decision to be made. <laughs> you're too biased. You're too, you're too pro Cowboys. J.J. Watt is an easier pick. Yeah, I, I, I mean. I don't have to spend organizational energy. Cleaning up Preston. Well, you might if 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 these rumors uh, that are, that are kind of under the surface about JJ Watt and his uh, supplement routine uh, start to grow any legs over the next year or so, uh, I'd well, be on the lookout yeah, for that. Yeah. But yeah, but 
I, I'd be on the lookout but, for something along those lines. But I, I, I definitely get your point. At, at this point but, in their careers, David Watt is much easier to handle than Greg Hardy. Uh, well, let's try another spin on it. It's a, I think it's quite a compliment to Greg Hardy that we're having this conversation. Because J.J. Watt is recognized as about the best there is. Well, I think Greg yep. Hardy's in that class. And so what's, I don't see anything that stops Greg Hardy saying, I've I want eight, you know, six years and a hundred million dollars, and I don't know that the Cowboys are doing that. Do you? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. No, I, I can't see them doing that. I can see them doing something if there's uh, an amount of uh, incentives put in, put in the situation, as opposed to it being, you know, a lot of the guaranteed money that Watt and Houston and, and Sue got, uh, but. It, it's going to cost. If they're really interested in, in working out with him long term, it's going to cost a lot of money. Um, Houston's deal in Kansas City includes fifty-two million dollars guaranteed. Yeah. Okay, well, that's. I mean, that's where I. If I'm through Rosenhaus, that's where I. That's where we start. I mean, you have to start there. No, yeah, you're right. You have to. One, you know, now maybe the Cowboys get a break because they sincerely believe that Greg Hardy is not a kook, but a bunch of other teams clearly believe either he is or they believe that their public will think he is and, and will therefore not accept uh, you know, Greg Hardy's resume. That's possible. But what I'm going to go on record now is saying there's only two teams in the NFL that won't sniff around Greg Hardy. Carolina Panthers, Baltimore Ravens. Every other team will, will want to get Drew Rosenhaus' phone call and visit on it. And should. Right. And the only reason those two teams won't is because you know, the public likes to call out that they're still digging out from. You know, what's so funny about this behavioral bullshit, uh, our team's more moral than yours, and our team's more... The Carolina Panthers, remember when they let him go and they said, we would never sign a player like that. The owner's doing right. With all respect, Mr. Richardson, you signed a player like that twice, and his name was Greg Hardy. <laughs> you just didn't sign him a third time. You signed him twice. So uh, the, the Panthers aren't more moral than the Cowboys. The Ravens aren't more virtuous than the Cowboys. They just can't absorb this at, at this time. What will happen next year, J.D., is Greg Hardy will sign somewhere. 30 teams will have sniffed around. Team one, people get them. The other 29 will pretend they didn't sniff around. They don't right. want to think. That, but that's a fact. That's how it works. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, a recent change was made. Uh, it's been a topic of a conversation. And it's funny because all of these uh, storylines that we've been following for much of the season have kind of uh, worked themselves out. And it feels so much like they've, they've reached their conclusion and now the Cowboys are ready to about that one killed me. Um, let me let me back up a little bit. It seems like a lot of the storylines that we've been chasing all year are finally reaching their conclusion, and the Cowboys have finally gotten to the point where they're gearing up for a stretch run that hopefully will still see them in the playoff race. Uh, most notably is obviously the change at the running back position after his outstanding game on Sunday against the Giants. Darren McFadden has now been uh, installed as the starting running back. We still do not have any idea of the way that the rotation is going to break down, whether Joseph Randall will even be healthy enough to play, how many snaps he'll get, whether he'll be the passing down back, 
see Mike will be the, the running back number two. We have no idea of any of that. All we know is that Darren McFadden has earned the right to start. Have you heard anything that gives us more insight from the coaches on how this happened or why this happened? Well, you're right about how the storyline, you know, we spend six months worrying about the storyline, but then they unfold as they unfold, and usually they fold, unfold pretty logically. Then we were asked to sign. When they were asking why, why they even signed Tristan Michael if they're not going to use him? The answer is because they wanted insurance against behavior and insurance against injury. Now Joe Randall is injured. He did not practice on Wednesday with that oblique thing. And even if he comes back and he's healthy on Sunday, he will not be the chairman of the committee. Uh, there's, I, I just know that there's not room to give, quote, enough carries of three guys. We do all, we all agree on that, right? Right. Now, you, you know, he's got to have a role. But, you know, Christian Michael, frankly, he blew his chance. And he blew his chance in practice when when he was he was this close. He was yay close. And then something happened over the course of the days in practice where coach just decided, He's not quite getting there yet. He's not quite grasping it yet. No, not nothing bad. Not a bad behavior. Not not that he's a stupid guy. Just hadn't quite gotten the coach's trust yet. And so Joe Randall gets hurt. Guess who gets the job? It's the other guy. And my contention, Tony Casillas and I got a big argument about this on Twitter. My point is that that would have been every running back that day. That that as as great as the fact look, the way the Cowboys were blocking and the game the way they game planned the block, if you gave twenty nine carries to Chris Michael that day, he was gonna get hundred yards. And then Tony's Casillas going all X and O's because you don't understand they were running to this and they were running Tony, you give 29 carries to Christian Michael. All he's got to do is average. I'm not very good at math. He doesn't even have to run well to get 100 yards. You give him 29 right. carries. <laughs> so, so this this isn't a McFad story to me. Although again, I, I defer to Tony to see it a thousand times for football man than I'll ever be. But this story about the offensive line and about Santana and about this win. If Joe Randall doesn't get hurt and get 29 carries, doesn't he rush for 100 yards? Oh, if Joe Randall doesn't get hurt, he might have gone for 200 the way it shaped up uh, to start the game with those first two carries. So, um, First carry for 13 and 11. Right. So I, I don't know how anybody can – again, this is, this is not a criticized fact. He was, he was great. He really was. He was he was as good as Joe as Joe Randall had ever been at any time with the first game. But but it proves once again that the running game isn't about the running back. It's about the running game. It's about the offensive line, it's about scheme, it's about opponent, and it's about opportunity. Uh, now, I don't know I don't know the Seattle game's gonna unfold quite like this, do you? No, nah, it's a much different defense that they're playing against, although the Giants are good against the run. Uh, but yeah. the the thing, the interesting thing is that the Cowboys did do some different things in their running game than they had previously. So right. my eyes will be focused on whether or not they continue down that path or they revert to the norm of how they normally would attack the running game 
uh, you know, with with the daunting Seattle defense ahead of them. That it, it's going to be a very interesting chess match and one that I'm actually excited to see the Cowboys entering because normally the Cowboys on offense are, this is what we like to do, this is what we're good at, we're going to do this regardless of what the defense is doing. So for them to take the bye week and make those changes was very uh, kind of exhilarating to, to, to see on, on Sunday, even though it ended up in the same result of a loss.
And we are working hard as usual here on Cowboys Crunch Time with KD. And it is time for the next segment. We are blessed to have the presence of the one and only Mr. Keith mm-hmm. Mullins. Make sure you are following him on Twitter at Keith Deuces. The one and only Mr. Mullins. How are you, sir? Standing in every way. How are you, sir? I have absolutely no complaints except for the fact that the Cowboys have now lost four in a row and we have to get the ship righted immediately or else the that's season a, that, could be That's a pretty in. big one. That's a pretty big one. Yeah, immediately they need to turn this around because the talks are coming to town and the Cowboys hopefully will have some ammunition in their guns. Shout out to Greg Hardy. Sorry, that cheap shot. But Des Bryant looks like he is going to be returning. He returned to practice today. We'll see if he ramps up. We just got finished talking to Fish, and he says that if he ramps it up tomorrow in practice, that we can definitely feel confident that that will transition to his making his first appearance since week one. So talk to me about what Des, Hart, Des, Des Hardy, what Des Bryant does to change the offense for the Cowboys. Yeah, I, I think that we've talked a, a lot over the last couple of seasons about the impact of having Des on the field. And, and, and you know, I think it's true of any, any true number one wide receiver, and there aren't a whole lot of them in the league that I would really classify that way. It's more than just being uh, the leader in receptions on your team. But, uh, but a true number one has other things they can do, right? If, if they're in one-on-one coverage, you can feel comfortable throwing that ball, right? There's, there's a certain, for me, there's a certain amount of, uh, or a certain level that a number one wide receiver has to reach on contested balls that, that's critical for them to be considered in that role. And, uh, and Des Bryant is among the very best in the league at that specifically. So, so not only does it give Castle, who's now, of course, in at quarterback, uh, a certain uh, amount of room to error because if his ball placement isn't perfect, uh, Dez has the ability to fight a corner or a safety for that football and protect Castle from a turnover. But, of course, the biggest change is the amount of attention that it draws, right? Uh, right. There isn't any time when you break the huddle as a defender and especially as a defensive back and that you're not identifying where Dez is by formation but it's more than that. It's during the week. Uh, we've seen teams implement all sorts of coverages in an effort to deal with Des Bryant. And he's one of those receivers that no matter how much attention they lavish in his direction, he still gets his. So right. we've seen everything. We've ever seen, seen everything from in the red zone, a, uh, a punt gunner type of defense where they put two DBs on him trying to press Des and keep him from getting off the line to, you know, much more standard things, which is a corner on him pressing, a linebacker buzzing underneath to take away the slant and a safety over the top. But we've seen Des bracketed with three defenders quite a lot over the last couple seasons. And so, you know, that's something that absent that sort of a, a threat, this offense has suffered greatly. And it's, it's not just a vertical threat. It's not just spreading people out, but it's literally drawing the eyes of defenders. And so Des Bryant being on the field makes every completion easier for Matt Castle. Whether he's going to Des and that giant catch radius or he's going to any of the other receivers, it makes everything Castle does easier. Of course, likewise, it impacts the run game where all of these defenses that have, um, you know, teed off the Giants were a little more uh, compliant (laughs) in terms of uh, playing the Cowboys and especially with Castle in there a little more honest than we had seen in Brand Whedon's three previous starts. But uh, these defenses that were not only stacking the box, but were rolling downhill at the snap. 
with with impunity, with with no fear of of getting cut for doing so. Um, you know, I I think a, a lot of that starts to go away, even with Castle under center, because they know that a quick throw, an instant throw to Des Bryant, can gas you, and uh, and so that type of threat is is monstrous. Besides the strategic things and the attention, the amount of energy that Des brings to the huddle um, is different than what he can bring on the sidelines in you know in in warmups and a cap, right? So so I think uh, it can't be overstated. You know, last week we saw Des. Um, moving around some that was encouraging, but when he showed up in pads today and and Garrett listed him as a limited participant in the media portion, it didn't look like they were able to keep him out of very many drills. Uh, he wasn't extraordinarily limited in what he was doing from what we all saw uh, the video that was shared by the media that were on hand. Yeah, now it, it did not seem like he was limited in any capacity, and of course that's a good sign uh, for his uh, chances of playing on Sunday against Seattle. Uh, now, the guy that will be throwing him the ball, uh, that you just brought up his name, Matt Castle, uh, we've gone to great lengths here on the show to discuss the fact that NFL games are basically won by who has the better quarterback, which means that if you have a backup quarterback playing, the chances of you winning are very small. Uh, we've seen some evidence contrary to that this year, but all in all, the the edict still holds if you're with a backup quarterback chances are you're in a negative position at the end of the game. Matt Castle did some great things in the game against the New York Giants. Uh, the big play returned to the Cowboys offense. Uh, I wrote an article about the toxic differential ledger earlier in the week in which I alluded to the fact the Cowboys only had five what are called explosive plays against the, uh, the Patriots, or I'm sorry, five or less in the last uh, handful of games. The Patriots game, uh, the Saints game, the, the Falcons game after uh, things changed in the first half, things just basically got shut down completely. But against the, uh, against the Giants, the Cowboys had 10 explosive plays of 25 yards or more passing or 10 yards or more rushing, which is a lot to say about the difference between what Matt Castle brought to the table and what Brandon Whedon was bringing to the table even though we've seen documented the fact that Whedon was still throwing downfield, he just wasn't very good at throwing downfield. So with that said, do you see hope at the quarterback position with Matt Castle in there until Romo comes back compared to the the sinking feeling that we all had watching Brandon Whedon quarterback the ship? Well, and I, I think I was pretty vocal about saying uh, two things. One, that the change had to be made, that Whedon, that Whedon had to be changed out. And that I didn't think it would make a huge difference in terms of production, but that it had to happen. Um, the reason that I thought it had to happen was some some things that people noticed and picked up on, and maybe some that they didn't. But you had you had the owner say on local radio here in Dallas that Whedon was being coached to be conservative, but that he he had taken it beyond that. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so we, so he essentially indicted Whedon for being overly conservative beyond what the coaches were demanding of him. And I know that early on there was a lot of suspicion that the coaches simply weren't letting Whedon throw downfield. Um, and you know, and and that certainly would indicate that that wasn't the case. That uh, that Whedon was simply taking what was there. But uh, but then beyond that, we saw you know an overthrow in the end zone where Terrence Williams felt perfectly comfortable showing up Whedon on the field and making a huge production mm-hmm. out of the fact that Whedon had missed him. 
And uh, and I know some people don't put as much stock in those things, but I certainly do, right? There has to be enough of a trust relationship there between quarterback and receiver. And, uh, and I think that Whedon was losing the wide receiver room. And then the thing that I thought was the worst one, and I, I definitely don't know how much this one circulated, but I, but I thought was incredibly damning, was you have the highly decorated uh, Bryce Butler, right? This is a guy who hasn't accomplished a whole lot in his career. And he felt comfortable telling local media that in their wide receiver meetings that, he, that the receivers were upset because they were taking so much criticism for not getting open and helping Whedon out, and that in their meetings, receivers were working open, and he refused to throw the ball. He refused to challenge defenses uh, downfield at all. And so when you have Bryce mm. Butler speaking out and, and basically defending the receiver group and saying that, hey, we're working open, and this guy won't let it go, I mean, you're at a point where whether anyone would admit it out loud or not, they're starting to believe they can't win with him in there. And, right. Uh, you know, and it's it's a monumental challenge anytime you have quarterback two in there. puts a ton of pressure on everyone else to be perfect. But you, you've got a defense that, while statistically solid, they haven't been creating any additional opportunities for the offense. And you have an offense that has no explosiveness. And so you're asking the offense essentially to sustain 80-yard drives with a guy that is throwing short of the sticks all day, right? It it just it wasn't a formula that was going to work. And so, and the part where I was wrong, I think I was right about the change needing to be made. And I think we saw that the part where I was wrong was that I didn't think it was going to make all that big of a difference from a production standpoint. And despite the three turnovers, you know, at least one of which that I would put squarely on uh, 83 in terms of, uh, you know, the ball was a little late on the out on the pick six, right? but, but Terrence stopping his feet and not, not continuing through that route or working back to the quarterback, uh, you know, essentially opened the door and allowed uh, Cromartie to get to it. But uh, but beyond, aside from the turnovers, I think we saw a huge difference. And you, as you alluded to with the with the increase in explosive plays, uh, Castle clearly, uh, whether whether dictated by staff or just from him sitting and watching the results of the previous weeks, um, or just in his DNA, but Castle clearly was willing to challenge the defense by, by throwing, you know, downfield. And we saw the defense respected, right? The Giants immediately, despite the fact that it was just Matt Castle, the Giants respected that, or at least the unknown, because they seemed to respect it early. But right. they respected that more than anyone was showing respect for Whedon. And so, uh, so I, thought, I thought that the fact that the Giants played them a little bit more honest was what really paved the way for the offensive line and McFadden to decide to have their best and most complete game of the year on the same day. Right. Uh, I think a lot of that was who was under center and, uh, and he won't get a lot of credit for it because they lost the game. He did throw three picks, but that change was significant because all of a sudden we saw this running game come untracked. And a lot of that credit is going to go to the fact that there's a new starter and that McFadden should have had these chances. McFadden had his chances, right? Exactly. McFadden wasn't doing it's, anything. It's he wasn't a, doing it. Running back his, right. He was, you know, that was an open, if there was an open competition, it was open, right? He got touches. He wasn't doing anything with his touches either. But, uh, but I think the offensive line was dominant on the ground against a Giants defensive line that has guys that will get in there and stop the run. So right. I thought the, that, that bit of confidence that the offensive line could build there, 
I think was huge because this is the same offensive line about to face the same Seattle defensive line that they had success running the ball, huge success running against last year. Right. And well, before, and before, before we go there, sorry, hold, go hold on, before we go there, I, I want to circle back to uh, a point uh, before we move on to the offensive line. My thing, my thinking about Castle taking over and, and the fact that uh, the Giants weren't able to prepare for seeing how Castle would perform in a Cowboys uh, offensive scheme. I think it bears a lot of weight and that highlights for me the importance of Des Bryant returning this week, because my theory is that when a backup quarterback enters a contest in game, you know, as a in game injury replacement, there's no book on them. So teams haven't spent time preparing for him. It's obviously a shift in strategy from everything that they've done to prepare for the normal quarterback. And I think that's the effect that you've seen twice now with Brandon Whedon. He comes in for Tony Romo. He performs admirably when there's a week to prepare and the opposing team has chance, has a chance to study film on Brandon Whedon and actually game plan around him, then things all fall apart. My concern is that this was basically that situation for Matt Castle. And even in that situation, he did have the three turnovers when the other team had no, had no uh, film to study. They were able to prepare for him. They knew that he was going to start, but they didn't have any Cowboys film to study and prepare for Matt Castle. So I think the dynamic of bringing Des back is going to make a world of difference because we know what Seattle's defense is capable of doing. We know what their secondary is capable of doing, even though they, they are playing Kerry Williams out there for a lot of snaps. But without Des, I think Seattle would have Matt Castle solved from the moment they get off the bus. With Des, I think this offense has a realistic shot of being able to do some things against the Seattle defense. But I, 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 will, I refuse to relent from the idea that backup quarterbacks are figured out easily in a short amount of time. We see it with Pittsburgh. Landry Jones comes in and, and ignites our offense because Mike Vick couldn't do jack. I was about to cuss. Michael Vick couldn't do jack at the quarterback uh, for the Steelers. But Landry Jones comes in, throws two touchdowns. The, what happens the next week? Landry Jones, with Kansas City having a chance to prepare for him, Landry Jones looks like what everybody thinks Landry Jones really is. And I feared that was going to happen with Castle if Des Bryant didn't come back this week. But lo and behold, it looks like we will get that spark. So I, I just wanted to throw that in there before we moved on to the offensive line. And I, I know you're going to make a great point uh, on, on the transition and comparing it to what happened last year with the running game. Don, and actually I'm glad that you circled back there because that's where I was headed was that we saw the <laughs> offensive line break out, right? But my concern is that while the Giants were so compliant in playing with this honesty when facing Castle, but then they saw Castle not execute on a couple of throws. They saw him throw into tight windows and tight coverage a little bit. We know Seattle likes to play that cover three uh, you know, shell over the top. So Seattle, uh -huh. is, my concern is that you would get in here, and while everyone is singing the praises of Darren McFadden and, uh, and his breakout and all he needs is touches, that if Seattle starts rolling forward at the snap and commits Cam Chancellor to the run game without Dez on the field, that all of a sudden you see McFadden go 15 carries for 25 yards, and people wonder what happened. How did we get back to this spot? Uh, you know, and, and Seattle sits back and lets Castle throw into zone coverage 
and waits for them to make mistakes, right? Which you right. very easily see with the kind of luminaries they have still over there, despite Kerry Williams on one side. Uh, <laughs> but the fact that, uh, you know, as long as they've got Earl Thomas in the middle, he's going to erase a lot of mistakes that that secondary makes, right? Uh, you're yes, going to cover up for a lot of things. So he covers so much of the field. And so I had a concern that it was good that the offensive line was able to build some confidence, able to go into this Seattle game and hopefully get established early because my concern is that Seattle, if Seattle started to squat on them, that we'd be kind of – we'd be back into a one-dimensional situation that would be spooky – uh, given the secondary that they're facing. Um, and I agree with you completely that Dez being out there helps keep that window open, right? Doesn't let them simply revert back to the uh, the last three weeks game plan that the Cowboys faced, you know, with Atlanta, New Orleans, and New England, and uh, and hopefully keeps it more open and more space for the run game to operate. Because for all the talent that Seattle has on that defensive line, and their linebackers are extraordinary, especially as run chase guys, but uh, right. that defensive line isn't big. So if the Cowboys can get established and get rolling, you know, they've shown that they can move those guys around and open up some seams. Um, but I think the Cowboys, Des being back, is extremely important for another reason, which is his red zone skills. Uh, we've watched the Cowboys kick red zone field goals, which red zone field goals in this league get you beat on a regular basis. And we've seen mm-hmm. it since Romo went out, this team kicking red zone field goals. And so if you can turn those into seven, you know, the biggest thing you can do to Seattle is take the running game out of, out of play, right? So if the Cowboys can get to a point where they can force Seattle to be one-dimensional, the one thing Seattle's done this year is give up a ton of sacks. So, uh, so I think that, you know, Dez being there and hopefully being able to turn a uh, – whether, whether the ball goes to him or not, but even just his attention that he draws in the red zone – I think would be extraordinarily, extraordinarily beneficial, but they're going to have to keep this run game going. And if Seattle squats on them again, then then you get into a position you don't want to be in against that defense. Exactly. Now on the flip side, uh, before I let you go, I have to talk about the. Uh, and it's not even improved play so much as it is improved opportunity of our man Byron Jones. If anybody's been listening to the uh, Crunch Time podcast since our draft season show. Uh, you know, during the last season of, of the of the show, the last last set of episodes, they know how intrigued we were by the possibility of Byron Jones, what he could do for this team. We thought he was the best fit out of all of the top corners that were available in the draft uh, based on risk as well as talent. Uh, I think we all were in agreement that Marcus Peters was right there with him talent-wise, uh, but he obviously had the risk associated with his time at, at uh, Washington. But Byron Jones was our guy, and then the Cowboys, lo and behold, selected him with the 27th 27th pick in the draft, and now he's getting the opportunity to shine. He got a lot of snaps against the Giants. We know what he did a couple weeks ago against Rob Gronkowski, and this week he's going to be taking on Jimmy Graham in probably a one-on-one assignment to shadow him all across the field. Talk to me about what you're seeing in Byron Jones and his improvement as he's getting more snaps and more opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I think that among the things that we talked about with Byron, and uh, you know, and and I I know people want him to be a full time safety so bad. Uh, my concern here, uh, and this is where I think that at least if Byron doesn't, I owe a high five, uh, certainly to Mo Claiborne, <laughs> for allowing uh, the Cowboys <laughs> to use Byron Jones the way that they are, and essentially what right. they're using him as is an eraser. 
right? They've they've been getting him ready ever since minicamp and ever since OTAs uh, when we first saw him start moving inside in money packages and covering tight ends in man. And I think in one of his first practices that they did that, Jason Witten ran across and Jones with that closing speed and that reach, you know, yep. zipped in at the last second and with the proper hands, you know, tipped the ball away from Witten. And, uh, and I think it was eye-opening, right? Jason Witten manages to get separation against guys that are more athletic everyone. than him all day long. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> everyone, right? So, uh, so, but they've been getting Byron ready for these tight ends on the schedule, uh, and that includes, you know, Gronkowski, everybody. Um, they were going to face a lot of these really athletic tight ends. And so they had a plan that they were going to be able to use him to eliminate those guys by being more athletic than they are and then having the size – to not get bullied or simply get boxed out and some of the other things that tight ends will do to you. And, uh, you know, I thought that he was fantastic against Gronkowski, right? We, you know, we saw, we saw one explosive play from Gronk and it was a catch and, and, uh, you know, and Byron had trouble getting him on the ground like everyone does, Right. but Byron, Byron is tackled and we're just not seeing catches on him in coverage. Right. I mean, he's been, he's been outstanding. And so, I mean, it's at the point where when they're using him in every money package, uh, you know, and he stepped right in when Church got nicked in the Giants game. He stepped right in as the yep. free safety and, uh, and immediately played well. And so, you know, Garrett talked about it in his presser yesterday that they've thrown quite a few different things at him responsibility-wise. Um, far more complex to play in the middle of the field and play all of those angles and all of those things than it is to simply put him outside uh, in man and ask him to, to mirror a receiver, right? So, uh, but Garrett said that they've thrown all those things at him, and no matter what they've asked him to do in game, he's performed to the level that they needed. Uh, and I, I mean, and I think that's huge for a rookie that at this point he's established enough confidence, you know, in the staff that they're putting him on these guys that are some of the luminaries in the league. And I think you're exactly right; he's going to get Graham one on one all day, and uh, and they're confident that he's going to take that guy away. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so uh, I think we would all love to see uh, the big – he came close, right? He had one that off the, off the ground, off the foot. And, uh, oh, it was so, so close, uh, man. You know, this, this is a defense that, uh, that bent a lot last year, and, uh, and a big part of why they uh, didn't break all the time was they had an inordinate number of turnovers created. It obviously hasn't gone their way uh, this year in terms of the turnovers, but turnovers are extremely difficult to predict, right? It requires the other yeah. team to cooperate and make a mistake, uh, either in how they're carrying the ball from a ball security standpoint or in a quarterback putting it somewhere that you could reach it. Uh, and then footballs aren't round, right? They bounce funny ways. Yeah. They do funny things. And so, uh, but what typically happens when as the sample size gets bigger, it starts to level out. And, uh, and gosh, if you're going to go a couple more weeks without your starting quarterback, it would be nice to have a couple of short fields. It would be uh. super to get a defensive score, right? Um, because they're just in that position. You know, I talked about the, the amount of pressure that's on every other unit of the team uh, when, they, right. when they aren't able, you know, when they aren't able to be as explosive because they have a backup quarterback. And they haven't been able to overcome little stuff, right? You give up a return touchdown. You can't overcome it. Uh, because there's no quick seven to erase that mistake. Uh, you know, if if the defense breaks down and lets uh, a little-known running back <laughs> run all over them, you know, for a 70- or 80-yard drive, there's no quick seven to answer it. So so I think that, uh, that you know, 
we've got to see this turnover thing reverse. Um, the, to say that Marinelli coaches it, well, every defensive coordinator coaches it. Um, they just come when they come, and and so uh, you know I think I think the Cowboys are still being aggressive about it. We've seen you know they've had a lot of success where where a guy will punch in and get a hand on the tip of the football and then rip it out on the way to the ground. We've seen them still trying those things, but we've seen yep. a touch before it gets ripped out, right? We've seen interceptions get dropped. And so uh, they're just not in a position to let any of those opportunities get away right now. So, uh, but I think it, over the court, you know, we're still in the, in the first half here. And so I think that as we turn into the, the second end of the season, it'll start to bounce out. They'll, they'll start, they'll start coming. And, uh, you know, this increased pass rush only helps that. That makes quarterbacks be a little less precise with where they put it. Um, Russ already, he doesn't throw a lot of interceptions, but he's a little imprecise with where he puts it at times. And then, as I mentioned before, Seattle is doing a terrible job pass blocking, in part, I think, because they thought it was wise to trade a stud center for a tight end. But, hey, <laughs> that was that was their choice. Uh, but uh, it, it certainly uh, – you know, this looks like a game where the Cowboys pass rush should have some success. I know that uh, DeMarcus Lawrence sat out today. Hopefully he'll be ready to go um, looking, looking to see him get some production with Hardy on the other side. And, and I think that, I think that uh, Randy Gregory said today that he only got eight snaps in New York and um, that he expects to get 10 to 15. So they're certainly still treating Gregory as a, as a nickel and dime rusher only. Um, which right. I think is, is, is still wise given his, his stature and, coming, of course, coming off the injury, having a big impact on that as well. But, uh, but yeah, definitely look, looking forward to seeing the defense turn one around this week. Um, you know, I, I think if, if, they can, if they can turn them over with some of the things they've already been doing, then they've got a, they've got a chance to, uh, to get away while Seattle's down a little bit. Um, so, you know, I, I know that uh, Lynch is now back. But, uh, but again, the running, the running game, as we've seen with the Cowboys, right, you had a highly touted offensive line, highly effective running game, and we've seen that if teams are dedicated to taking it away, they can. Um, but nothing takes it away like the score and the game situation and the down and distance. So it'll be interesting to see how the, if the Cowboys can play enough situational football to keep Seattle out of their comfort zone where they can just hammer at you with Lynch all day. And that'll be where our eyes are going to be trained come this Sunday afternoon, 3.30 p.m. Central Time, 4.30 Eastern Time, when the Cowboys once again are in the eye of the national storm as they take on the Seattle Seahawks. My man, Keith, thank you as usual for your tremendous co-hosting abilities here on Crunch Time, man. Uh, the, the show's never the same without you on. So we're going to have to talk again next week as we hopefully are celebrating the end of this lengthy losing streak that the Cowboys are on with a victory over the Seahawks. We will have to talk again soon, my man. I will be here uh, keeping the wagons circled and, uh, and waiting for number, number nine to lead the Cavalry back. But until then, <laughs> we, will, we will talk to you next week. And again, uh, Tampa plus one, that's the mantra. We need Tampa plus one there it before is. Romo gets back. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't care if it's this week or next week against Philly. It's got to be one of them. <laughs> Tampa plus one. All right, brother. There we'll it talk is. To you next All week. right, man. Talk to you soon. And it's that time of all times. Of course, we are now joined by the one and only Mr. Joey Ikes here on Cowboys Crunch Time. Mr. Ikes, how goes it, sir? It goes very well, my friend. Hoping we can get us a Cowboys win pretty soon because I'm tired of losing. This is getting very draining 
losing on a regular basis. We're not built for this anymore. We gave up Amen. on losing streaks. We gave up on losing streaks a couple of years ago, and we aren't supposed to be going through this. But alas, the injuries have gotten us, and the Cowboys have now lost four games in a row. But in this most recent loss, there was a lot of hope spinning forward. And obviously, me and you have talked about this relentlessly, the differences between how Joseph Randall and Darren McFadden fit in the Cowboys' zone-blocking scheme. And lo and behold, on Sunday, Darren McFadden took over for an injured Joseph Randall and went ham to the tune of 29 rushes, 152 yards. Talk to me. Obviously, all the McFadden supporters are ecstatic, and I told you so, and all of that kind of stuff. So talk to me about what you've seen in analyzing the game. Okay. Well, first of all, I think it's very important for me as someone who was very, very not anti Darren McFadden, but anti his fit in this organization and this team. It's very important for me to first of all acknowledge that Darren McFadden looked very good on Sunday uh, against the Giants in the run game. Uh, the yeah. next most important thing for me to state is that an immense and almost unquantifiable amount of credit in this situation needs to go to Scott Linehan and the way that he called this game because it seems as though he took a page out of Rod Marinelli's book from the New England game and went counter to their identity in almost every way you could imagine. Uh, we saw the very first play of the game. What, is the, what do the Cowboys always run on the first play of the game? Outside zone right or outside zone left, and away you go. Uh, this this game, fakes outside zone, little throwback to Jason Witten, goes out and gets him, I think, 12 yards on the first play of the game, and now you're ready to roll. They come back with the lucky whitehead jet sweep, which they never do, and then they run a sweep with pulling linemen out in front of Joseph Randall on the third play and gets another 13 yards, and all of a sudden we've moved almost 50 yards in three plays, None of the three have been a core part of their first down strategy for the entire six games of the season so far. So in that first three plays, it's an illustration of Scott Linehan went into this game with the intentionality of being opposite of the team's offensive identity for, for the, the six games leading into it. Now to get to Darren McFadden, um, the, the conversation that, you had so many times that I had so many times that our, our guy Jordan Ross had so many times was was framed by the fact that this team is an outside zone run team primarily. It's what they were primarily last year. It's what they've been with an overwhelming majority for the first six games this year. And in that frame, in that scheme, Darren McFadden is not a good fit. Darren McFadden has the ability to be a good running back. I don't think anybody ever debated that. Uh, what we debated was his fit as a running back in this system. And I, I, my intention leading up to this recording was to chart every run play and, and get a number of outside zone runs versus other runs that they ran in this game. And I got about I got through about two and a half quarters of the game and I think there were 20 or 24 run plays at the point that I that I, I had to stop charting to jump on with you here. And I think four or five were outside zones. There were traps. There were counters. There were sweeps. There were all kinds of plays, a bunch of inside zone, kind of almost dive plays the way they run inside zone here. 
none of which were outside zone plays that require the lateral agility that you and I and Jordan and so many other people have, have kind of raised the flag of, hey, Darren McFadden doesn't have this skill set that is required right. to be a good runner in this system. They completely altered the running system in this game. And the, the hard thing about it, it's almost the same conversation we had to have coming out of the New England game with guys like how with with how much guys like Corey White and Byron Jones played in the New England game. Was it a game plan specific thing for one week or was it a we want to get this person more involved? For for McFadden for New York is was this the plan all along, even if Joseph Randall would have stayed healthy and been the lead back the whole time? Was this the plan for the Giants game? Or was this Scott Linehan saying okay, this is the guy that I've got to ride for the rest of this game. These are the types of runs that I'm going to call in order to put him in position to succeed. Uh, it, either way, it doesn't change the fact that Darren McFadden is still too stiff to run outside zone 20 times a game and have success. But it does change the fact that if this team is going to call, if this team is going to start pulling linemen and running tight ends across the formation and all these things that they did against New York, if that's the new running style of the Dallas Cowboys, plug Darren McFadden in there and let's go. And I've said that all along, that I was fine with Darren McFadden if you wanted to pull linemen all over the place. So if that's what they're going to do, they've got a chance to be successful with McFadden as long as his however many year old body at running back can stay healthy. Well, I think it's an, such an interesting situation and a lesson learned because we didn't just come up with this idea that what needs to be a perfect fit for the Cowboys offense as far as running style because under Jason Garrett, we know the Cowboys rarely stray from what they think is their tried, tried, true, tested game plan and approach to winning football. They know what they know, they do what they do, and they use that to attack, and they don't care who knows how they're going to be attacking. They're just going to do it. So for them to make this transition and go away from the ZBS-centered run style that, as you said, they used last year, they used to a ridiculous amount this year. For them to change from that over the bye week is is earth-shattering in the fact that we don't normally see a bunch of creativity or on-the-fly changes from this Cowboys offense. So I am so intrigued by how they're going to approach this Seattle game, uh, who obviously they run their own ZBS game. They're used to seeing it. But the Cowboys offensive line, and I guess we're transitioning to the next uh, topic, they've been injured. Fish and I have talked about it for the last month. We did not think that uh, Zach Martin was fully over his, his stinger. We did not think that Doug Free was over his foot. And obviously Ron Leary had his issues why he was replaced by Lyle Collins. With the OL coming back, Hannah coming back, Jason Witten having time to recover from his sprained ankles and sprained knee, it looked like the blocking was on such a different level from how they were early in the season. And all in all, I'm thinking that this might be even a better iteration if they can continue this moving forward than what they were in 2014 because now their pass blocking is on par with the run blocking that they gave uh, in this game against the Giants. So what are you seeing? Obviously, you described the types of running plays the Cowboys were running but give me your evaluation of how the O-line looked and where you think they could be going from here. 
Well, I mean, I think you frame it very well. It seems as though with the insertion of Lyle Collins and maybe the bye week helping the guys on the right side, this offensive line is healthy and kind of ready to roll into what we think that they, they what we thought all along that they could have been, what we still think they can be. Um, I think you, you have to just say, holy cow, Lyle Collins is going to be really freaking good. I think you have to make that statement early. Just the demeanor that he plays with, the attitude he plays with, the way he finishes plays, the strength that he displays on some of these plays. I, I tweeted a, a short little video of the the third down play in the red zone where uh, where Castle had to kind of throw the ball hot to, to Witten off his left side because of, because of a blitz and. and and on that play, it almost it, it's hard to tell because we don't know the protection call. It almost looks like Collins kind of makes a mental error and doesn't account for the, the blitzer in the A-gap right away at the snap. So he goes to his left to help help Tyron Smith with the, with the defensive tackle there. And then as the linebacker comes through, he turns his body and reaches. And just with nothing but his hands, just puts his hands on the guy and just – he basically punches when you talk about offensive line terminology, uses his punch and knocks the guy about three yards off of his path and straight onto the ground. Like just his body turns around, arms go out, knocks the guy completely over, completely off the path he was trying to run. It was an awesome sight to see. And that's the kind of guy that you have now at left guard. And Ron Leary was a very good player here for three years, but I think it's safe to say at this point he's been upgraded. Uh, he's going to go somewhere, and he's going to start next year. He's going to make good money, and he's going to be a good player for who knows how, for however long his body will hold up for him. But uh, until until Lyle Collins either regresses massively or is uh, is not healthy himself, uh, Lyle Collins is going to be the starter at left guard, and, and he's going to be a really really good one. Uh, and, and that just kind of it pervades through the rest of the line. Uh, they, they they played incredibly well, I think, is is just the easy way to say it. And, and people will talk a lot about, well, the offense was able to make more big plays, so it opened it up. And, and one of the things I was charting on the run plays was the, the numerical advantage or disadvantage as like a plus or minus ratio kind of, where if, if the Cowboys had seven guys in the box and the, the or seven blockers available and the, the, the Giants had eight in the box or eight in the run front, then that would be a minus one for the Cowboys. And it was consistently minus one, minus two, minus one, minus two, uh, as far as the Giants consistently had more guys in the box than the Cowboys could account for with bodies, and they still ran for the, ran the ball as well as they ran it. So it was, it was, a, it was just a display of, of greatness and domination by the offensive line. Yeah, uh, Darren McFadden ended up running for 5.2 yards a carry, out of that 3.4 yards were yards before contact, which just goes to show you, especially with the number that you just said, which make, makes it even more remarkable, the Cowboys offensive line was out there putting in work. If you're getting yes, 3.4 yards now, I'm, I'm not taking anything away from McFadden because being quick to the hole has a lot to do with how many yards you get uh, before contact when there are holes there for you. Uh, but that, that's just a tremendous amount of work. I think last year they were like 2.2 yards before contact on uh, on DeMarco Murray run. So, to me, that might have been the best blocking that we've seen from the Cowboys, and it leads to the question, would they be better suited? Because last year it was more of a mix, but I still think it was about 65-35, 70-30, uh, 
as far as running ZBS compared to uh, Power Man scheme. Maybe this team is better suited with this personnel to be, uh, a, you know, a complete hybrid or even leaning towards Power Man, and that's not something that I ever imagined myself considering, much less saying out loud. Yeah, I mean, the thing that they – the the thing that they have that works to their advantage from an offensive line standpoint is they have athletic players on the offensive line, but they're not undersized athletic players. So typically right. a zone blocking scheme, a zone blocking team will feature very athletic, but oftentimes undersized offensive linemen. And that's the reason why a lot of times why you run the zone blocking scheme, you're not trying to drive people off the ball. You're trying to move them laterally and pick your gaps. Uh, as a runner, uh, and, and if, if they don't – but the Cowboys have adequately sized players who happen to have the athletic ability to execute a zone-blocking scheme. So they've got mm-hmm. these guys who can one-on-one down-block on guys and get movement at the same time that they have guys who can zone-block, get to the second level, things like that. So – I have no problem with with a, a hybrid scheme running the running the pullers and the sweeps and the traps and the things like that that they've been running uh, or that they ran this week uh, to go along with the outside zone and the strain that that puts on a team. But the thing about consistently running outside zone is at some point you have to threaten the backside of the play, and that's right. something that they re- that they really hadn't done because again we talked about. You're constantly at a disadvantage numerically from from because of the fact that you have a quarterback and a running back that aren't blocking. So the uh, the defense can always put you in a numerical disadvantage. The way you have to handle that is you have to, and I'm doing air quotes just like you like to do on the radio. You have <laughs> to block the extra guy using some sort of threat to the backside. So you leave the last guy on the line of scrimmage to the backside unblocked, and then it's his responsibility. To, or it's your quarterback's usually responsibility to keep that guy from from accelerating down into the screen or down into the play and squeezing the gap that the runner would normally run through. So without the threat of the bootleg that they haven't had, without running some sort of ghost motion, which they used to do with Dwayne Harris pretty often, uh, or without running a split zone where you run a tight end across to actually physically block that guy, you can't you can't keep that guy from stopping the cutback. And we, you, you kind of heard Brian Broaddick talk about Joseph Randall being cutback guy. He turned into cutback guy. And there's a reason, and that's because the play is partially designed to do that. That's one of the main reasons play. Uh, and it's, it's probably the most often called for read in the play, if that makes sense. And, mm. and Joseph Randall was executing it appropriately most of the time. But the problem was, the backside guys had no threat of res- they had no reason to respect the backside, so they were constantly crashing down and tackling Joseph Randall for a two-yard gain, as opposed to holding that guy in place for a split second and letting Randall hit that hole and turn it into a six, seven, eight, fifteen-yard gain, like we've seen him be able to do when the holes are there. So if they're if they're not going to use the bootlegs and the the the, the ghost motions and, and that sort of stuff, if they're not going to do that in concurrence with their outside zone, 
then they got to be able to run the ball in a different way or else they'll never – they will rarely break the kind of runs that they want to be able to break. So I'm perfectly okay with with the hybrid mix type scheme if that's the way that they want to go. If if they went into the bye week and said, okay, we've got to deviate from our identity here and, and become this type of team in order to get that physical identity downhill running type style that we want to be, we're going to have to change the runs that we call to get there. Uh, I'm all for it. Yeah, like I said, it's going to be very interesting to see how they uh, approach this Seattle game and this and this uh, tremendous defense that the Seahawks present and the challenges that go along with that. Uh, before I let you go, um, I have to touch base with you on your opinions on the thing that everybody nationally wants to talk about. Obviously, Greg Hardy is always in the news. When the Cowboys signed him, you did, I believe, the best job of any writer that covers the Cowboys and going into detail and finding out all of the facts of the circumstances of the case, the original uh, case in front of the judge, the jury trial, et cetera, et cetera, and laid out the foundation for how I approach the situation and how I try to inform other people. So I have to get your opinion on what's going on with Hardy and, for me, the over-exaggeration of the importance of what happened on the sideline. Uh, so just really quickly, give me your take on the situation. How much do you think that there is a issue that might eventually come to a head, or how much do you think this is just sort of overblown media Cowboys clickbait? Okay. Well, first of all, before we get into it, the last thing I want to be known as, I, I, wrote, the, I wrote the article, I, I collected the facts because – Personally, I wanted to gain the insight into what really happened. Exactly. Second of all, I, want, I wanted other people to have insight into what really happened uh, or to the information that has been gathered and allow anybody to make their own decision about what did or did not happen that night in May of 2014 in that apartment uh, and the, the month uh, afterwards. Uh, and so my goal was not to be Greg Hardy's advocate, a Greg Hardy defender, uh, Right. I have two. I have two daughters. I have a sister. I have two sister-in-laws. Uh, all of these things. I, in no way at all am I downplaying the idea of domestic violence at all. So let me let me put that out there first, just like I did at the very beginning of the article. So we'll, we'll say it that way. Now we get to the clipboard and yelling at Rich Versace and all that kind of stuff. Who cares? <laughs> I mean, it, it's. To me, it's a very similar situation to what we saw a couple of years ago. You see Des Bryant go crazy on the sideline in Detroit, and what are the narratives? It's, this guy's a diva. He's a prima donna. Look at him throwing fits on the sideline. He's just another receiver who doesn't get it. And then the audio comes out. And how quick did those narratives change? It went from that to, holy cow, look at this guy being a leader. He's young. He's passionate. He's getting after it. He's the kind of guy that they want to have on their team. And and that's not that far from the case with Greg Hardy to me. Uh, again, I have my own opinions about what took place in the apartment in Charlotte, uh, and so that frames my frames my view of the player in that I, I've had people in my Twitter mentions call him a pure evil, call him a savage, call him all of these sorts of things that are opinions that I don't happen to share. I don't know the guy at all, never met him, but I understand the circumstances that uh, surrounding the situation. So I don't believe that he is any of those things. The people who have spent the last seven or eight months around him since he was signed with the Cowboys 
don't believe those things. The people who speak to him on a regular basis don't believe those things, that he is those things. They believe that he is a good guy who was in a bad situation. Whether he did what he was accused of or not is up for any person at all to interpret because, again, he was he was never formally convicted by a trial at a jury of his peers, uh, which is called for by the Constitution of the United States, so we could get into that. Uh, but but ultimately, it doesn't matter if he gets upset on the sideline. We again, I'll go back to Brian Broaddus on, on the Cowboys website. He talks about standing on the sideline for 13 years as a member of, of NFL organizations, and he said that the general public would be absolutely shocked and appalled at the things that go on and the things that are said between trainers and coaches and players and trainers and coaches and players and these and players within themselves in the emotional state and the pressure-packed environment that is an NFL game. And he got in the huddle trying to encourage his teammates to go make a play to help them because he's, he's making plays and he wants he's asking for help. He's encouraging guys to help. And Rich Basaccia, whose team just gave up a gigantic kick return to give up the uh, to give the lead back to the Giants, is probably not in a state of mind to deal with something like that. Probably wasn't the best time for it to happen. The argument occurs. He slaps the clipboard out. Does Bryant gets involved? Kind of pulls him away. They have the conversation, so on and so forth. It, it doesn't matter. But as you said, it's the Cowboys. It's Greg Hardy, who has now become this hot topic where it, it, I called it on the radio in Memphis yesterday, almost a witch hunt to a certain extent, where it's mm-hmm. let's search for any possible way that we can bring up this guy's name in a negative light because that's going to generate traffic, ratings, views, all of those sorts of things that are the metrics that we, we are all measured by as members of the media. Uh, so it's it's a very – it's a very difficult situation to sit back and watch because at the same time you understand, you know what, it's very possible that the events that this woman claims took place did take place. And if so, then he made a very horrible mistake, made a very horrible decision, even if you don't want to call it a mistake, made a very horrible decision and and, and did things that are very difficult to wrap your mind around. But, it's, there's enough cloudiness in the situation for me to just accept him as a human being. If it happened, okay, let him move on with his life, with his with his new girlfriend and his child, and, and stop calling this guy all these evil things that you don't know whether he is or not. So a uh, long-winded way, you asked me very quickly, and that's probably the opposite <laughs> of what you got. But uh, but again, it's just it's a very difficult situation to to navigate and to to really make sure that you have a good understanding of before you pop off and call him pure evil or a savage or a horrible person or some of the other things that we've seen him called. I had somebody literally come to me on Twitter and say that if he reacted that way to a clipboard, imagine what he did to that poor girl. Somebody literally, literally drew the straight line connection between the two events that could not be further from being related. So it, it, it's a firestorm. It's a witch hunt. It's very popular right now to speak negatively about this individual and thus react negatively to anybody who speaks anything other than negativity about him. 
And so it's a, it's a very easy way to generate traffic, views, clicks, ratings, all of those sorts of things that, that us in the media seek every day. And what, what I find the strangest is for, obviously, they're, they're members of the media now, but former players to respond to the sideline dust-up as anything other than what you uh, had Brian uh, just, just said Brian brought us explained away uh, as the general public would just be appalled if they knew what happened on the sideline. For players that know these things, it's just it's 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 jaw dropping, mind numbing for me to listen to them say these are the things that cannot happen. You cannot do this, and it's just it, it's so phony to me to hear them do that. But again, this is the time that we are in. Social media, mainstream media, it's all about clicks. It's all about uh, faux outrage uh, at, at whatever. And he's more than given given them enough fodder uh, to to light that to light that candle with. So. Uh, with that said, I'm going to let you go. My man, Joey Ike, as always, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, if you're listening out there, please go follow him on Twitter at Joey Ike, J-O-E-Y-I-C-K-E-S. He is a must-follow. He's trying to catch me a Twitter follower, so uh, maybe I should have him do a show and bring me on as a guest and plug my Twitter handle or something good. He's chasing me down, folks. Uh, regardless, go follow him on Twitter. Mr. Ike, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure as always, sir. All right. We'll talk soon. All right. That'll be the end of this week's two-part Crunch Time Marathon. I thank you so much for tuning in, listening in, as you always do, making this show a great success. We're nothing without the audience, and we're nothing without the ears to hear us ramble in yet. I am, as always, your host, KD Drummond. I hope you're following me on Twitter at KD Drummond NFL. Shoutouts galore to my guests this week, starting with yesterday's episode, Danny Kelly of FieldGoals.com, and my man Brian Burns of the Football Sickness Podcast. Great to have him on, as always. And of course, this episode's guest, the one and only Cowboys insider, Mike Fisher at Fish Sports on Twitter, Joey Ikes, and the one and only Keith Mullins. What can I say? I know a lot of very intelligent football people, and I'm glad to have a chance to chop it up with them and bring it to you. That's it for now. The Cowboys move on to Seattle. Hopefully they will be able to get a victory uh, in Arlington at the Jerry Terradome because they're hurting, man. We need to end this losing streak, and we need to do it fast. So with that said, we're going to knock on wood, sign off, and tell you exactly what you know you need to hear. I'm disappointed in you, dog. You ain't holding down at all, but I ain't going in your jaw. I'm just gonna show you how to ball. Standing tall through the storm on the yard in the dorms, cats in prison who expected me to represent form. I never let you down. I'ma shine on sight. Keep your mind on your grind and off of mine's alright. Right hard, I'ma ball. Don't know squares. I float in quarter million dollar cars everywhere. I go. I know. Cocktail that never break the glass. Scare ass nigga wanna come for me.